the project. Kuwait. Learn. So, Dr. D. Frank, thanks for bringing him in. Wow, he was amazing. The experience, my God. What an amazing conversation. Amazing. From PTSD to AI to sociopaths, cults, terrorism. I mean, he's full of information and the experiences he had and how he was able to, you know, describe PTSD or how he saw it or how he even been able to handle his own PTSD. Nevertheless, the people he worked with, I was very, and he's a really great talker and explained things in elaborately. I hope everyone enjoys this. If you've had PTSD, if you know anyone that has it, if you had anybody in the military, I mean, his experience is full of information. Enjoy it. Have fun. And let us know what you think. And don't forget to leave us a rating or review on iTunes if you want to try and win a world-class limited edition t-shirt from the Project Kuwait. All this and more in today's episode. You're on. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Frank. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? Thank you, I'm fine, Good Doc. seeing you. Good seeing you as well. Well, so uh, thank you for doing this podcast with us. That's my pleasure. I wanted you to introduce yourself, say what you do, and, you know, we're going to just talk. Sure. My name's Frank Balonis. I'm the president and CEO of Falcon Desert International here in Kuwait. I'm also the vice chairman of the American Business Council in Kuwait. I'm also a 20-year veteran of the U.S. Army, where I used to do counter-narcotics, counter-terrorism, hostage rescue, all that kind of stuff. I also ran schools and wrote books and several other things while I was in the Army. And then once I retired from the Army, I was the chief of the uh, counterinsurgency training team, working with the 26-country coalition for Iraq and Afghanistan. And then I became an advisor to Kuwait and worked with Kuwait with the National Guard and then for a short period of time with the parliament doing predominantly security and defense type stuff. But now I'm in the civilian business world. Yeah, that's a different uh, experience. I guess the first thing I wanted to know, because you have experiences from the West and the East, can you tell us some of the differences that you've noticed with security or, I mean, the things that you could share, but I wonder, do you feel like People take your advice more here. Are they more serious here in Kuwait we're talking about? Actually, you know, it's interesting. I think there's a lot of collaboration between the West and the East, first of all. So they're regularly communicating. I see many different countries rotating through a lot of these countries over here in the Middle East and working together. They have contractors from several different countries that help them out from the West as well and vice versa. And so... To me, everything, it's almost the same. You know, if when I was in America, I would recommend something, we'd discuss it, so on and so forth. And I see the same thing when I was working over here as well. So it's pretty much the same. And do you miss your military lifestyle or are you happy it's your civilian now? You know, I miss the camaraderie. I miss the people that I used to be with and that there's, it's a special environment and a special bond that you, especially in combat arms, you're a very close knit group of people and, and it's family. And I miss that aspect of it. Sometimes I miss making a difference in certain things, you know, especially when I was doing a lot of counterterrorism or helping people in certain areas and stuff like that. 
But no, when I transitioned out, that was it. I never intended to go back into the military sector. When I got out of the military, it was just, it fell out that way. I was asked to come back over here and work with coalition forces and to help them. So I said, okay. Well, I'm dying to find out some of your experience. And of course, you know, Mahdi probably be interested more in artificial intelligence. I, am <laughs> I, I actually have, I have a good psych question. I have a really good psych question for you. Because <laughs> um, you worked with counterterrorism. And I don't know if you remember that movie with Schwarzenegger. And it was in the 90s. And there was a lot of psychological psychological profiling going on of terrorists. And they pegged a certain age and a certain profile. And I've read this too. And I'm, I'm, I don't know if it's true or not, but I've read it several times that the profile of a terrorist is usually between the age of like 18 to 24. And then it's like after the age of 27, you know, they kind of forget about you. And you're not pegged as easily susceptible if that's true or not. Well, uh, you know, it depends because I, I've seen in certain dynamics in certain areas with certain causes, it, it fits that mold to a T. But I've seen other areas where I've seen people of virtually every age group that find the cause or the motivation to be involved in whatever it is. One man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. So depending on, on, on what the issue is, to kind of defines who's involved in it. And I've seen all of it. I've seen males, females, young age, all the way up to elderly, elderly people. I've seen them manipulate mentally handicapped people to become suicide bombers. I mean, I've seen all of it. So they look from my experiences and what I've dealt with, they look for anybody that they can manipulate and they can control. And they also look for anybody that they can control through fear or other means of persuasion. So they have a lot of characteristics of, of a cult. Cause I was just watching on Netflix, how cults get started in the history of cults. And it's like, you basically described what they were describing about cults. Like yeah, you they, know, how they operate and the guy that had everybody drink the Kool Aid, the Jim Jones. Yeah, yep, Jim, Jim Jones. Jones. Yeah. <laughs> was it Texas or California? Nah, San Francisco. Oh, yeah. I was growing California. up in that San Francisco Bay Area when that's that right. happened. That's right. Yeah. And it is. I mean, terrorism is part of cult. And that's how we recognize yeah, it's, it. It's just, it's a form of mass manipulation. Again, it's dependent upon the cause and everything else, you know, because sometimes we call certain you know people terrorists that other people don't even recognize as terrorists and that's something also to consider but what would yeah, that be like for example separatists in certain countries maybe i don't i mean i don't know i'm just hypothetically throwing out there you know there's a country that's divided in view and then somebody you know stands up and and publicly fights and it turns into riots and this and that well just because these people, you know, have a different view doesn't make them terrorists to a lot of people. To other people, now you're questioning democracy in this particular country, so you're a terrorist. So I, I think it varies in mindset for a lot of people. I, I love this, man. You're a great talker, by the way. Because we said <laughs> no politics, and you did not drop one thing where I said, oh, we got to cut that later. And that was such a statement where someone could have <laughs> dropped the wrong word or brought up the wrong example. And that was like money, man. Money in the bank right there. <laughs> Thanks. I appreciate it. <laughs> no, but I like this. I like the way we're talking about terrorism. Because at first I was like, well, I really want to hear more about your experience as a combat. But one more question about terrorism sure. and, and profiling. So you, so you have experience and you profiled. So it doesn't really depend that up to 27 and then. So you're saying that it depends on what country, the circumstances and the culture. Uh, but you're also saying that there are particular things that people look for as we identify a terrorist, right? And those things would be like, what will be a common general thing? Besides that, these other unique 
aspect? Well, obviously, there's uh, the obvious triggers, you know, those things that are like certain things that certain people say or do or support that are indicators that eh, this person leans potentially extremely in one direction or another, you know, and it could be a, a mass variety of things. You know, in the United States, we have that. You have groups and cults and ideologists, you know, that were in, all throughout America. And once they become extreme, uh, they're a potential threat to their surroundings. And, hey, they fall in, they begin to fall in that category. But like I said, I mean, terrorists, those that wish to do harm to other people can be anybody. You know, I mean, in the name of whatever cause. You know, there's female suicide bombers that blew up in India. There's there's a, you know, female that stabs somebody here in the Middle East, in the middle of a mall. You know, I mean, it can be anybody. So when I was doing what I used to do, that's something that's always in the back of your mind. You don't, you just don't know. You know, I've seen kids strapped with bombs, so you, you don't know what you're dealing with. So you always have to be cognizant and aware of everybody around you. Have you seen Mindhunter by any chance? No, I have it's not. Do you have a life? No, I, I actually don't. I mean, like some I, of us work. I barely watch TV. Like, Where does I have, he see I have, all this? I have 45 minutes a night when I get when I get home from the gym, and that's when I do my TV watching. And I, I have to pick my shows very well. I don't even watch TV. <laughs> no, so I, 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 I got to shut off Mindhunter. Mind it's a great psychology really? show, by okay. the way. It's these I'm going to write this down. They study all the psychopath killers. Ah, okay. So now... And I don't, I don't know if you can even talk about this. If you can, great. Now, with terrorists and cult leaders or people that join cults, let's just mm -hmm. say cults so we remain politically correct yeah. and we don't have to worry <laughs> about anything. Now, do you guys study previous like cult followers or terrorist followers to mind map them, so to speak, to find out what are the triggers, to find out who's susceptible and how we can stop it before it even starts? Is that... I'm sure that there are people that are out there that do do that. I mean, I'm assuming that that's was not, the goal. That was not my world. My yeah. world was particularly more kinetic. You know, I was the one that went after them once they were that way. Okay. Uh, but absolutely, I'm sure, you know, one of the things you always want to do is count of, I mean, it's like any kind of war on anything. It's like... Uh, the war on drugs, you know, I did counterterrorism, but one of the things I always used to tell everybody is me being the kinetic person is not the answer to the war on drugs. The war on drugs is understanding why these people are becoming susceptible to taking drugs and becoming drug addicts. How are we treating them and taking care of them? How are we interrupting the logistics flow of all of this? How, you know, all of these things combined is what defeats drugs in any environment so prevention you know so yeah. exactly so when it comes to so terrorism just needs to do a better job <laughs> <laughs> well you know the thing of it is, is they're, they're part of the equation you know and in the military before i left the military they were part of the equation one of the things that we were doing is look how do you counter these messages that people are getting through internet and everything else and, and psychologists were involved in a lot of that you know what makes people so susceptible to want to do something so extreme Right. And I think that's important because, I mean, this is like as a psychologist, what I've been trying to educate more and more and being out there. And this is part of why we do this podcast is that I feel like prevention is the best answer to a lot of these, you know, a lot of these struggles or a lot of these problems that if we can just prevent it, if we can educate people on, you know, if it's terrorism, if it's psychological disorders, if it's whatever it is, I think the more people can get educated, the more maybe we can, you know, we can help someone that is thinking of like becoming 
or joining a cult, then they would think about, you know, what are the consequences, for example. I think a lot of times, and and maybe, you know, even when I, I teach the class about cult or I teach class about aggression, it is, it's like certain personalities are more susceptible, obviously, the age, you know, individuals that are like, don't have a lot of connection with their family, there are easier, you know, they're looking for, I feel like a lot of times in cult, there are people that are looking for some sort of a, um, someone to support them. They always feel like, I mean, same thing, like, you know, from Chicago and whenever I used to work in Chicago and we had a lot of gangs, right? You know, when we, we met people that were a sociopath or, you know, people that belonged to gang and they were young and especially in the Hispanic area. And then most of these kids like come from broken home or economically they are, are you know, uh, from a very poor economic neighborhood, for example, they don't have anybody supervising them. So they seem to have been attracted to having that kind of an activity. So terrorism or cold or all of that, I think, belongs to the same thing. So I'm sure that your experience of, you know, studying this, that's probably... In so prevention is, is a good thing. And I'm glad that in the military, they had psychologists that would also help you in profiling and, you know, trying to find ways to prevent it. But then we were earlier, we were talking about sociopath and how you studied, you know, identifying sociopath. What really drives these people? You want to talk a little bit about that? What drives people to be sociopath? Well, first of all, well, I'm not the expert. You are. But <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. <laughs> it was just something I studied on the side, you know, but I was very, it was it's always very something interesting fascinating. People. Yeah, it's, it's like they have a mental disconnect, you know. First of all, I will tell you, it's one thing to read about them. Uh, it's one thing to learn about them. But when you meet one in person, yep. it's a life-changing experience. You know, Very I, true. I, I remember uh, uh, we captured one guy one time, and, and he, was a, uh, he was the executioner, the torturer and executioner. And, and you can see it in his eyes. There was just this disconnect. He had no emotion, no remorse, no nothing. And even the people he worked with were afraid of him, you know, and that's, and that's how they manipulated that society in the area that he was in. It was just by through just random, you know, random acts of terror and fear. So it's, but it's fascinating, these people in the way that they think and, and the way they work like that. And you got it right because, you know, also when I worked with them or when we had to do a lot of psychological analysis on a, if there was a psychopath in, a, in prison, for example, or a sociopath. And, the, and I mean, and that's what the definition of, or even if you look for, um, symptoms of sociopath. One of the biggest thing is like they have no remorse. And I, I remember myself also interviewing this individual who was just caught for killing as, yeah, I can't remember the number of people that he was accused of killing and raping uh, some teenagers. So I remember that the idea is that just having that interview and I felt like, you know, I, I asked him one question at that time. like, I'm just new. I don't really know a lot about sociopath. I'm asking, well, how do you feel about doing this and he just like looked at me like he probably thought well what the hell are you asking this question I don't feel nothing and it was like these gazed eyes that I felt it was it was terrifying for me also like I was like okay even though it was a protective area I knew nothing was going to happen to me but is that this connection that I felt like I felt scared just yeah, sudden I can understand feeling that. it you know and he's like I don't care about these people and then he went on and saying to me these people all deserve to have this done to them. Why do you care about these people anyways? And why are you guys studying me? And I was just doing a psychological report and I wasn't even having to study him. But it was just interesting. It's the chillness. Look, I felt there was, like I felt there was coldness in the room. 
Uh, I don't know. Oh, absolutely. It's uh, exactly what I felt the same thing. I, it was the middle of the night. It was dark. We were in the middle of a desert, and we were using flashlights. And when I put the flashlight on his face, I was just, just looking at this guy. I was like, oh, you got to be kidding me. And then they handed me the meat cleaver that he was holding, and I was like, oh, this is just horrible. You know, you just your hair goes up on the back of your neck and everything else. But yeah, back to what you were saying though, with the whole cult thing and everything else. You know, the one of the things that I've noted, I've being all around the world in bad places and bad times. There's a couple of things that always struck me. Number one is it's amazing what humans will do at the lowest level. You know, sometimes it just dawns on you. You know, we're just another species of animal on the earth, and given the opportunity and the environment to be horrible, some people absolutely will. And then the other thing I always noticed is that there are three factors to me that I have seen everywhere I've ever been that has deteriorated into some kind of a crisis. One is poverty. The other one is a lack of education, whether it's formal education, an educational level within the society, or education on the subjects that motivates them. And then the third thing, and this is my personal thing in life, and that's respect. Respect for fellow human beings how you interact with other people, so on and so forth. And any place I've ever been where I've watched it deteriorate, you'll see that society, just aspects of that society has a lack of respect, whether it's interacting with one another, whether it's how they drive down the road, whether it's how they treat each other in public or in behind closed doors, you just see that deterioration. And those are the three things that I have seen in every place that I've ever been that were deteriorating into some form of a crisis. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Very interesting. So that takes me to my question, which the idea of like, you have seen a lot and you've seen people that have, I mean, not only because of your military experience, but also because of all the different things that you have done. So I'm really interested in the type of PTSD that you guys have seen or the way that how trauma has been, you know, experienced or being treated or with the guys that you worked with in your military experience. Because I know you and I have talked a lot about, you know, the type of aggression also that you have seen probably has a lot of effect on you as a person. Nevertheless, the combat and the team that you worked with. So I was really interested in what you've seen and how is it? Well, PTSD is the reason I'm here today. Uh, (laughs) Well, no. no, Your experience is amazing. Well, I appreciate that. But, you know, The big thing for me is this, uh, PTSD has affected a lot of the people that I know. It's heartbreaking to go through something as horrible as war, make it out of it alive, go home, and then watch people just deteriorate, can't manage their lives anymore, and then some commit suicide, things like that. It's a terrible, terrible thing. And one of my motivations to come on your podcast today was just to be able to talk about that tell people get help if you need it, talk a little bit about the symptoms and some of the things you see. And because sometimes you don't even realize that you're in that state of funk or whatever the case may be. But there are some phenomenal statistics that are out there. You know, we always say the 22, you know, we say there's 22 veterans that commit suicide every day in America. 22. The last Veterans Administration study that came out in 2016 said 20. So it's 20 to 22. That's a lot of people. Um, I went and looked up a couple of things also that I found very fascinating. It's less than 10% of the entire adult population served in the military of the United States. And currently, less than 0.5 are currently serving 
of the entire population of the United States. But some other U.S. news just recently had an article that was interesting, and it talked about how 12 out of every 100 Gulf War vets, that's 12%, have PTSD at any given year. Everybody that helped liberate Kuwait. So, and then it goes on, it's even higher for Vietnam vets. So it's amazing. And Vietnam vet because there, it was a longer period. Is that why? A longer period, so greater exposure That's may right. potentially be one. And one of the things I usually always say is, is it's a different kind of war. You know, that has a dramatic effect on you when you're around the populace or the populace is your friend today and tonight you're, he's your enemy, that type of thing. So, you know, I think that type of thing, it adds to the equation, if you will, you know, as you were saying, you know, I've seen a lot of things in my experience in, in war, you know, I'll talk about Iraq, for example, a lot of my soldiers, yeah, we were very, very gainfully employed in Iraq. We were, you know, we were in firefights every day at one point for like months, you know, working 18, 20 hour days, seven days a week, the entire time we were there. So it, it's, it's very, very strenuous, difficult environment. And it's interesting because I've lost soldiers, you know, you've had guys, your friends die, so on and so forth. But some of the most traumatic things that stick out in your head are not the things that you psychologically think about or prepared for when, when you're getting ready. First of all, I should say this. I personally believe there is no way to prepare for war in that regard. You can be knowledgeable, you can be aware, but to see what happens to a society and a people and then kids and this and that, those things, you know, you can't replicate that. That's something that just hits you in your face when you're there. And, and I think that's one of the reasons why so many people today, like a lot of my soldiers, I get calls 10 years later. I, I'm still getting phone calls and messages from my young soldiers. You know, hey, I, I've, you know, I've, I can't sleep tonight and I've been thinking about that. And I let them talk. You know, because that's what they need to do. They need to talk. And I'm more than happy to do that with them. But it's interesting, the stories that the things that they remember, it isn't the firefights that we were in or getting the blown up. And that is sometimes. But it's the children that were blown up that we had to save. It was the bomb that went off in the marketplace and then running down there trying to help those people. It's those things that are the things that stick in your head. So that's why I said, you know, Vietnam, I think there's a lot of that. That's not to mitigate what some of the other conflict i mean i'll tell you an interesting story well first of all i should tell you this you know a lot of people think military people are these rough tough mean guys that don't feel anything <laughs> that's in this so and true that. it's, it's like everyone's like oh the authoritarian kind opposite. of personality you know the truth of the matter is is from day one you're taught selflessness it's all about everybody else that's all you that's ever care true. about i mean if you're the senior guy you eat last everything you do it's about them so that bleeds over into everything you do in society as well. And so they're very emotional people. They're just like everybody else. You know, they're not no robotic little things that everybody always talks about. They're methodical. They're good and they're professional what they do and they're experts at what they do. But emotionally and everything else, they're like any other human being, you know. So I should start out by saying that, number one. Number two, I should also start out by saying my experience doesn't mean that's the experience of every American soldier and everything else. I, you know, me is me. And the way I think and the way I work is the way I work. But I will tell you a personal story is I, I lost one of my soldiers, the first one I lost in the last time I was in Iraq. And he was our youngest soldier. And it was just heartbreaking to me. I mean, crushing. He was a single father, little girl. It just broke my heart. And uh, 
after we did everything that we had to do to prepare to fly him out and everything else, I went back to my little room and I sat down, cried like a baby, wrote a letter to his mom. And I always felt it was very important to tell him exactly what really happened from right on the spot. So I did that for every single one of them. So anyhow, I was sitting there and I was doing that and I sat back and I was just taking a deep breath and trying to collect myself. And I look over and I got some letters sitting on my table. Before I went to Iraq, a buddy of mine said, hey, my dad, he's a veteran and he would like to write you. And I was like, well, that's kind of strange, but sure, why not? So uh, he sent me a letter. When I first got there, I got a letter from him and I opened it up and it said, yeah, today it's snowing and I'm building the grandkids a sled and this and that. And it's a six page letter of just nothing. And then at the end, he said, I hope this took your mind off the war for just a few minutes. I said, you know, that's awesome. So every couple of months, I'd get a letter like that. So here I am sitting there in this situation and everything. And I look over and there's a letter. I said, you know, if I ever needed a letter like that, this is the moment. So I open the letter up and I start to read it. And it starts out with, and there we were. The boats are bouncing all over the place. We're climbing into the landing craft, going into D-Day. And I start reading the letter and he talks about how his company, two-thirds of the company was gone within the 21st, 24 hours. And it was just like a shock, you know, it's like, now it's like real. And I was like, I took a deep breath. And then one of my other leaders came over and I wanted to talk and he was a little sad. And I said, you know what? Look at this letter. And he's like, oh my God, how'd that guy put up with that? How do you deal with that kind of thing? So, you know, it's interesting. Everybody's affected differently. And like I said, I, not to mitigate any other past experience of anybody else, you know, but it's very sad that people are going through all of these struggles and everything else, but it's a reality and it's something that needs to be addressed and people need to recognize that it happens and it doesn't happen the day you get back. Sometimes it happens 10 years later. When you go to war... Actually, PTSD doesn't have to be. Uh, a lot of times it's reported even six months, a year, 10 years after. Yeah, absolutely. So nowadays we can diagnose at any time, really. Yeah. Well, you know, when you go to war, first of all, I always tell everybody, when you go to war, you're changed. Period. I don't care who you are. I don't, you change. It may not be for the worse. Sometimes it's for the better. I learned how to smell the roses. I learned how to appreciate the moments. I learned to be thankful for the little things. You know, that's, that's what it taught me right away. It taught me to say, I love you to the people I care about every day, not wait until later on and this and that, because life is fleeting. So there's a lot of benefits I got out of it. But just like everybody else, even I was affected by it. You know, I, it's a weird world. You can be in a war for nine months, 10 months, and then you fly over by helicopter onto an airfield. 24 hours later, you're getting picked up in a civilian airport and you're driving down the road and you're just looking around. You're totally, you know, you've been 20 hours a day fixated on not getting blown up. Now you're driving down the road in a car and you're driving and you see a bag on the side of the road. The first thing you do is you flinch. You know, even I did that. So, you know, it, it affects everybody, you know, but pretty quickly for me, thankfully, it all went away. But I've seen a lot of different effects in different ways in people. A lot of people, they, they have recurring nightmares. They can't sleep, you know, and it's just overwhelming for them and they just don't want to do it no more. I've seen people that it, uh, have fits of rage and are angry all the time. I'm, I know for a fact that when I first came back for the first few months, I know I was, you know, it's, it's hard to come back down again. You know, you're so amped up and so wired and focused into what you're doing. It's hard to shift back into a, a, a chill, normal little lifestyle again. 
And in the back of your head, you're always thinking about those people that are still over there, your soldiers, you know, your people, and you're worrying about them as well. So, yeah, it's interesting And as far as military life goes. So I got a question. I mean, what are some of the symptoms to look for in people that we know, for instance? I mean, I had, I had a bunch of buddies of mine that went to high school and one of their teachers and you know, this is coming from my buddy's story, flipped his desk over thinking that people were throwing grenades at him. And he was a Vietnam vet. This was years ago. So like, what can you look for? Um, or what can you see in family members and friends? I mean, especially in Kuwait, like my wife's father, he was taken as a POW. and During the Gulf War? During the Gulf War. And she told me stories. She's like, yeah, my dad, he always walks around the house every single night. He has trouble sleeping or whatever. And I've noticed it in family members that were here during the Gulf War that they have major anger issues and they have major issues with being surprised and whatever. So like, how can people kind of notice that? Because now we're getting older as the Kuwaiti society is now we're getting older. Like the generation that was in the Gulf War, they're probably seeing some of this stuff where you could be seeing in a family member and not know it. I'm glad you brought that up because one of the things that I wanted to mention is, yeah, military, you think that, they, oh, the military, they go through all of this. They do all of this. You know, I always think about the people that had to live through war, like the Kuwaitis that were here during the invasion occupation. I think about, you know, all these other places, the impact that it has on that society. So, you know, it isn't just about military. It's everybody out there, you know, and my wife was one of the ones that was here during the invasion of Kuwait. And I see aspects of PTSD in her. There are certain things she doesn't like. There are certain th noises she hears that triggers her into nervousness and stuff like that. You know, low flying helicopters does not make her happy, you know, things like that. So when you look at, uh, at a lot of that, there's flipping a desk over and over, that's just blatantly obvious sign. You know, this is a person that's reliving a moment or something like that, but it doesn't have to be something. It can be as subtle as just an attitude change in, you know, all of a sudden their, their life cycle just changes. They become more introverted. They don't want to talk to anybody anymore. They don't, they're not sleeping well. They're just the basic, basic things, you know, one of the most critical parts, and I've always said that one of the most critical parts of all of this to anybody going through any kind of traumatic experience is the support system that's around them. It's true. Uh, and it's that's, true. that support system is not just to help them. It's to recognize things in them. Because when you're going through that, I, you know, quite frankly, I had no clue. I was twitching away from bags in the road until somebody told me. And then I was like, oh, okay, I see it now. And then it went away. You know, so sometimes you just need somebody to, to tell you, hey, look, you know, your attitudes change. You know, you're more, you seem to get aggressive more quickly. Little things like that. Sometimes you don't even see it yourself. So, no, it's true. And I think sometimes, you know, because I also work with a lot of, you know, being in Kuwait and then we have a lot of veterans here that are coming back as contractors and just being back in this part of the world. So if they were, you know, I see, a, I do a lot of evaluation for them. So if they were in Iraq or, you know, at that time, or maybe they did serve during the Gulf War. And it's very interesting because most all of them, you know, have these symptoms, but they don't really realize that it's this PTSD. And the only reason that they're in my office is because someone has told them their wife, they usually have problems with their relationship. Like right. some of them have had multiple marriages. And the thing is, is that a lot they'll say it's because, you know, they're snappy, right? As you said, like a lot of times they'll, they'll be working long hours, especially here if they're a contract, they're working long hours, then they're coming home. They don't want to be bothered. And it's hard to have a partner because they want to come home and they just want to vegetate, you know, watching TV. They don't want any noise. They don't want any conversation. And 
And anyone's partner is probably going to think that, you know, she's home all day waiting for the conversation. The other thing I've noticed here is that they don't want to have any relationship outside, for example, friends relationship or going out or having fun or, you know, their best thing is to go to work, come back and I just want to eat. I don't want to be bothered. So the trust issue becomes such a big thing. Yeah, it affects a lot of aspects of your life in that regard. It Absolutely. does. And it's like, if you don't trust, if you can't hang out with people. So that's probably one of the things is that they do have bad relationship because they're not, other people do not understand. I remember one guy though, one guy said to me, and it was so real, you know, I was like, I don't know what I asked him. And he's like, you know, we are in war. We hear noises all the time. We're seeing people killing. And he was in one of those team that goes back and makes sure that everything is done. I don't know what you guys call them. But so he he was like, you know, he has a team of five. They go to make sure everything's done. He's like, you know, we go back. Our job is mainly to see a lot of people. They're, I mean, obviously this is what you do. They're dead. And he's like, so we come back. Uh, we're bombarded. Uh, he's like, my when I go back home, he's like, I don't understand. People become piddly to me. I remember him saying that. He's like, people are talking about a bill. So he so he served, he went back, he was going home. When he was home, and then he came back again here. He said, when I went home, I don't want to deal with anyone because it's for, the, for him to talk about uh, what do you want to eat? Um, you know, I didn't pay my bill. Like these like simple things that we do every day in our life that we think about. To him, he felt like they were useless. They were conversations he didn't want to get into because what he's seen, he's seen a lot. So his idea of, you know, it's traumatic, like it's not trauma if I can't pay a bill that is like whatever to him. That's like, so it's like senseless. So he said that people didn't understand me. I go there and I can't relate to anyone because everyone's relating at one level, which is that normal level that we should be relating. And he needed someone to understand his experience, which is beyond anyone else's comprehension. I've seen that several times. As a matter of fact, that's another one of those things I had to adjust to. The fact that your picture didn't come out very good on your Instagram is absolutely irrelevant <laughs> to me. It's so not, it's not worth, selfie, you know, <laughs> the things that people stress about and, and everything else is just mind blowing to me. But then I have to bring myself back down and go, you know what? There's a reason why, you know, but yeah, you know, I've seen that a lot. I've seen people sit there and they're ticking at a whole different level. That's right. And everything around them seems mediocre or you're nitpicking and it's irrelevant stuff. That's and right. why are we even wasting our time talking That's about right. this? How does this affect the world? How does it affect what, what's going on? Bad places. You know, if it ain't that, it ain't important. You know, I, I've seen that kind of attitude and, you know, and, but the thing of it is, is that's just a, yet another indicator. You that's know, true. if your brain is functioning at that level and you can't come down and, and function at a normal societal level, well, then clearly it's time to go talk to somebody. Right. So he had a hypersensitivity and it's true. It's like, but then the problem is, is that everyone else around him, I mean, this particular person, he's like, everyone around me felt like I was minimizing their experience, but he is minimizing their experience because in his mind, it's like, why is everyone making a big deal about this stress? This is not a stress. Go see what I have done. Go see the stress that other countries, go see the killing and the death, yeah. you know? So the idea is that that's why he could relate to people. And that's why most of the time, the support system that he thought he had, most of them kind of gave up on him because they couldn't relate to him anymore. So this understanding, this hypervigilant, this I can't sleep uh, nightmare, and not having someone to really talk to you that understands your experience, 
you know, it's very, very hard. And it, you know, and PTSD doesn't have to be with war. I mean, it's just yeah. this summer I saw be a someone that accident. no, and the, or or you know, or, a, or plane crashes, for example, yeah, exactly. or major, major uh, uh, car crashes, for yeah. example, traumatic death, like you know, if you had a couple of people dying at the same time yeah, in a short period of time, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, to me, I think one of the most critical aspects to all of this has always been the same thing. It's the same thing when it comes to relationships. It's the same thing when it comes to dealing with issues. It always boils down to communication. And well, we all can always have, we all have room for improvement in communication, but when it comes to relationships, the support networks that are around you, so on and so forth, it's all about communication. Now you don't have to be able to talk to them. But they level. don't communicate. People are right. struggling with suffering with PTSD. One yeah. of their thing is they don't communicate. Which is one of the reasons why they get stuck in that loop. That's right. One of the reasons why it's so important for them to seek help. One of the reasons why they end up feeling like they're all alone in the world and there's no hope anymore and they want to end it all and they're just tired of it all. And which is so sad to me, you know, there is, there is hope. And they there's are at risk of hope. killing themselves. It's yeah. True. You know, and, and they're high risk. Well, you know, it's, I could never relate to this before, but then I knew somebody who had a terminal illness and that was suffering. And I was talking to them on a regular basis and they were one of the toughest persons I ever met in my life, just so strong as a human being. And it was so shocking to look at, have them look me in the eyes and say, Frank, I'm tired, I'm done. I don't want to do this no more. And it just hits home, you know? And it's the same thing with these people that are, I go through periods of insomnia, but I've done that all my life. I did that as a kid. So, I mean, I know me, but I can't imagine living your life continuously unable to sleep or on minimal sleep, even though you're dying to sleep, you know, you just want it so bad or having, you know, I've, I, we've all had nightmares and, and I've had my fair share of nightmares, but I can't imagine not being able to switch it off or not being able to wake up from it and it goes away, you know, and all of the, on a constant basis that the fight that some of these people have, as far as I'm concerned, they're more courageous to keep that fight up and to go get help than they were than when they were in war, you know? So I think it's amazing what people are going through and how they're handling it and fighting through it, you know, not giving up on it. But I see why there's 22 people a day that die from suicide. It's because they just get tired of it and they can't find the right help. They can't find somebody that understands them, that can hear them, so on and so forth. Once again, the reason I'm here is because I want them to know there are people out there. Dr. D., there's folks, there's folks that are out there that can help you. Don't ever give up. Find the right people. It's all over the internet. I help you go through the problems. Do right. something. But can I tell you something? Like some of the individuals that I see here, and I'm also in the U.S., but the idea is that when I ask, for example, when I ask, why have you waited this long before you can come back to Kuwait so you can come and see me? Why do you have you waited so long? Why... Is, does the military really provide enough services for them to recognize? And most of them say to me, well, in the military, you can't just go and say that you've got these symptoms. They're going to think that you are not equipped to stay in your job. Is that really true? I'm glad you brought this up. I mean, I, it's like... That's it's a like, culture attitude. Now, let me tell you, when I first went in the military, first of all, I had a couple of officers that melted down in combat and had to be sent out. So there would be... So... When I first went in the military, this is something you don't talk about. This is something you just, you do your job and you move on. That's you know? right. And if you, and if you have an issue, eh, you're weak. You know, that culture 
that attitude isn't there anymore in that same regard than when I first came in. It has improved drastically, you know, and there's a, an awesome story I just read a little bit ago. A senior leader, he took over a big unit, military unit, and one of the first things that he did is he went over to the psychiatrist and a psychologist and he said, hey, I want an appointment for 10 o'clock on Friday. Psychiatrist is like, yeah, sure. Yeah, there's a big guy, you know, he's like, yeah. So he goes in there and he does the appointment and then they sit there and that guy just sits there and talks for an hour about every, you know, cars and fishing and this and that. And after the appointment's over, it's like, okay, thank you. And he leaves. The next week comes back, same time again. They sit around and they talk and everything. And after an hour, he goes, okay, thank you, leaves. So on the third time, the doc looks at him and says, look, is there something I can help you with? Is there something you're having a problem with? He goes, no, I, I have no issues at all. He said, but all those soldiers out there, they see me come here every day at 10 o'clock. So now they know it's okay to come see you. Oh, that's nice. So, you know, there's, <laughs> what an amazing story. There, there's a big cultural change. It's because a lot of the guys that are senior leaders now, you know, they are the ones that were with me at one point, you know, growing. And now they're the biggest bosses and they've experienced the same thing. They know some people need help, so on and so forth. So I think that culture and that attitude has changed. But you know, Western mentality is we're the man of the house. We take care of the bills. We take care of everything. And, you know, blah, 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 blah. And we blah, don't blah, share, blah, feelings, we don't share feelings. We don't complain. And, and this you're and not that. supposed to say you have a disorder. You can't say that I'm suffering from trauma. Nah. You're supposed to wa see all these traumatic experiences and just suck it up. And I think a lot of these patients that I see here said the same thing. They're like, no, you think I'm going to go tell my general or whoever that I need help? No, they're going to see me as somebody weak. I'm not weak. I'm supposed to handle it. And that's why they wait so long before they can get their treatment. And then when they go back to the U.S. and, you know, the hospital, Veterans Hospital is like packed with overwhelmed with, overwhelmed with a lot of cases because yeah. they haven't been dealing with them earlier. And because they're overwhelmed and they're not getting get the help, they wait and wait and wait. And then they decide, I'm tired. I want to, you know, go. Well, you know, I, I hope. I haven't been in the military for a little while now, but I hope that from what I have seen and heard, and I've got close friends that are very senior leaders now, every one of them that I know are very supportive of going to seek help. And it doesn't affect your career, you know, and if it does affect your career, maybe it needs to. Maybe it's time for you to get out of the line for a little while, take a break and see a different life of the military for a little bit and then get back into it again. You know, uh, one of the, you know, that grind. And then I think of these poor guys that have been on, I don't know, countless deployments back to back to back to back, yep. but it's the nature of the beast when you're in that kind of profession, you know, I mean, it is what it is. You do your job, but you know, when it's time to talk to somebody, it's time to talk to somebody. There's and, nothing and wrong may, with it. And maybe the military needs to normalize it. Like you said, I mean, if you're back to back to back combating and the ideas is that, okay, well, obviously anyone else would be in that situation they would have some of these, I mean, they might not meet the PTSD criteria, but they have the symptoms and some of them we've talked about. I think we need to be able to let them understand that this is normal. So, you know, like when I get somebody, I remember I got somebody and he's like telling me, telling me like, so he has nightmares, he can't sleep and he's having aggression. Most, most of them have said these, these are the common ones. And then I'm like, well, of course it's normal. It is normal because, you know, we're serving in one place and went somewhere else and went somewhere else. And I'm like, you know, this is very, very normal. And he's like, well, around people around me don't understand that this is normal. They think that I need to toughen up or khalas, forget about it. This is the other thing that kills me is that, so the support system, it is number one thing that individuals who are struggling with trauma 
need, but at the same time, they have to be the support system. They're not minimizing it and saying like, you know, toughen up, get over it. Well, uh, there needs to be an education for the definitely. support system as well. I mean, there just needs to be a general education overall. And I, and I do believe it's happening. I think I've seen a lot going on where people are starting to understand, look, this is a normal repercussion of doing such a traumatic thing in your life, you know, or going through such a traumatic thing, irrelevant of what you, what it is, military, not military, whatever, you know, and that these things do happen. And sometimes you just need to talk to somebody and there's nothing wrong with that and you move on, you know? So it's, again, I can't emphasize enough. The support system is a big deal to me. And, then, and the reason why is because it's an obligation. If you care about somebody, you're obligated to help your friend. And it's part of the brotherhood, sisterhood. So you see somebody struggling, you don't know how to deal with it, then you get educated and help them and help them get to the right people, so on and so forth. So it's incumbent on everybody, I believe, to get educated on this subject. Even me, you know, I, I never felt like I had PTSD, to be honest with you. All the things I've gone through in my life, I personally never felt I had PTSD. But so many of my friends and so many of my soldiers were suffering from it. I said, you know, it's time to get a little educated on it so I can help them and point them in the right direction. And when I started educating myself on it, that's when I realized, oh, wait a minute, twitching from a bag on the side of the road and these little things, that's actually part of it. So, yeah, you guess you did have something a little bit, but you worked through it. So it's very important that everybody gets educated on the subject, you know, and even if you're not the one that's suffering. So what you're saying is what helped you is that even though you've seen a lot and, you know, you've got some really traumatic stories, you're saying that what helped you then that it could benefit other people who are going through the same experience? Is it the support system only you're saying? Or are you saying that is a type of personality that kind of makes people some vulnerable and some not? What will help people in that kind of an atmosphere or anyone that has trauma? How do they deal with it? You know, I've thought about this a million times. I wish I knew what the exact answer is. That The conclusion I've come to is there's nothing special or unique about me, period. It can happen to anybody. And I'm sitting here talking to you about this today. Two years from now, I'm the one sitting on, uh, with you and having a discussion with you about how it's affecting me at that point. You don't know. you know. So first of all, I think it can happen to anybody. I don't think nobody is safe. Very true. Uh, number one. Number two, me for me personally, I wish I knew that if there's no silver bullet, you know, there's no great answer to that question of why I'm fortunate enough to not be as affected in the past. And uh, I've just always had this mentality of war's war. It's a horrible, terrible thing. One of the things that I've always lived by and I've always told my soldiers is as long as you're on the moral high ground, you do the right thing and you can look at yourself in the mirror the next day, then you'll be okay. You'll, you'll be able, because it's not about what you did tomorrow, today. It's about what's going to happen to you 10 years from now afterwards when you're thinking about what you did. So in conflict, you know, when and all the things that I've did, that was always in the back of my head. Always do the right thing, you know. But on the other hand, understand mistakes and accidents happen. You know, that's war. There's no way things go flying around and all that lead and, and there's no mistake that's going to happen. It, it's war. But understanding that you did everything humanly possible to prevent that. You know, one of my biggest pet peeves has always been the idea of harming an innocent person personally. You know, it, 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 the idea of that just used to horrify me and throughout my entire military career. 
when you're on the radio dropping bombs and on, or you're you're shooting out there, you know that's one of the things that uh, me personally was one of my pet peeves. And thank goodness, you know, as far as I'm aware of, I've never had any case of that. But that's an aspect of that. And then I think because of that mentality and understanding that war is war, and when it's done, it's done. You when it's over, leave it there. You know, try to leave it there and come home and recognize where you're at now. Appreciate the fact that you are alive. Live your life for those that no longer can. They don't want you to be miserable and unhappy. They want you to be happy and enjoy life. So I make sure that every year I toast them, try to live a happy, good life, not just for myself, but for all of my friends that couldn't be here anymore. So it's kind of my attitude. I have a quick question. I'm sure. listening on to most of this. Dr. D knows me. I kind of save up and just kind of collect so I can come up with a really good question. My, my question's more or less. I mean, you said something really, like, really enlightening earlier in terms of when we were talking about cults and when we were talking about, you know, uh, terrorist organizations. And you said prevention and getting to it earlier. And we were talking about that a little bit. Now, when it comes to PTSD and the military especially, and I know that and I'm not equating prison to military, but I know with prisoners, sometimes in some prisons, they will kind of readjust them if they're going back out in society so that they can adopt to society again. Right now, when when soldiers come out after being in the military for 15, 20 years and it's all they've known, are there programs in place for you know military men to readjust to society and the norms of society again. And then the other part of this question, all right, it's a twofold question here. What is some of the new research that is out there in terms of treating PTSD? I mean, I've read articles about MDMA has been being experimented with the oversight of psychologists and psychiatrists. I've read that CBD is now being used. I've read that medical marijuana is now being used. So what's your opinion on some of this? Well, on the first part of the question, the transitional phase for me was rather interesting because when I retired, I was just like, okay, you're done and you got to go through a physical and a medical and this and that. And then you, uh, you got to talk to a psychologist. I said, okay. We're so important. <laughs> no, no problem. You two better remember so that. It was just, yeah. So uh, I said, sure. But just like Dr. D said, you know, they're so overwhelmed that they had to send me out to a civilian psychiatrist. Ah, uh, see, yes. And they so, they okay. need to do that, actually. And so uh, that was an interesting experience because they gave her a questionnaire and, you know, have you ever seen a dead person? You know, just this just yeah, blank exactly. questionnaire. Like, I just came you know? from war. How could yeah. I have not seen a dead person? <laughs> and, and so they give you that. And so I sat down and the appointment was for 30 minutes. And I walked in, I sat down and she said, you know, I'll be honest with you, I have never, ever done this with a military person or done this in this capacity before. I said, yeah, no problem. You know, I'm happy to, you know, anybody that knows me knows I'm a very honest, very to the point kind of guy. I don't, you know, I have nothing to hide in my life. I'm a very open book. So I said, you know, hey, ask me anything and it's no big deal. So she goes through the questionnaire and asks me a few questions. And the next thing I know, she's almost in tears. <laughs> I said, are you okay? And she's like, I've never heard such horrible stories. things in my life. <laughs> I was like, well, it's okay. You know, don't worry about it. I'll be fine. And then she's like, do you mind if we talk some more? I said, yeah, no problem. So she canceled the rest of her appointments. And we sat there for a few more hours and just talked about, you know, how do you deal with it and all this kind of stuff. 
But the interesting thing was, was that was it. That was it for me. Now, th- obviously, that was some time ago. So there was no readjustment, no, <clears throat> nah. like, all right, how to get a job, no, no on the other interviews, well, on, like, you know, well, like, kind that's of. That's very uh, important. No, with, uh, I'm, I'm talking just the psychological. Now, on the other side of the house, they have a transitional program. So there is. There is, there is, is like, a transitional okay, program, right. and it's actually, I know for a fact, it's improved since even before, back when I knew it. I've seen some of the improvements, and it's amazing. They help you write resumes and, and start understanding more of the civilian terminology and and, nah they've done a lot better in the in the recent years and improved in that regard so now the interesting ones are the ones that like you do an enlistment and you choose not to re-enlist and then the next thing you know you're just out now you can go use those services and everything else but they're just a lot of them just leave because i met some homeless people in the states you know i mean in Boston, over the last five or six years, it, the, the homeless population has just increased. It's, yeah. It looks like it's blown up. And a lot of these guys are ex-vets. And you can tell by the way they are, their clothes, how they talk. And, you know, and it was curiosity of me, like, all right, how did they get from being regimented in the military, everything, and then just not knowing how to readapt to society again? Well, I think and, that's part of it right part, there yeah, is, but, you know, is but, the regimented aspect. You know, one of the things and the transition from going from civilian uh, military life to civilian life, uh, I don't care who you are. It's difficult. It is a difficult experience because, you know, now you're in a society that's a totally different norm than what you've dealt with for how many years that you were in the military. Uh, and not only that, you know, this leads kind of back to what Dr. D was talking about. Assume that you you, could, you did 20 years in the military. You retire. And then all of a sudden you have some issues. Your support network doesn't know how to deal with it. And next thing you know, you're on your own and you got nothing. The only place to go is down. You know, there's very few systems in place. And a lot of cases for somebody that ends up losing everything in a divorce and this and that. And all of a sudden you're just sitting there and you're like, what just happened to me? And you, you got that anger built up in you. So now those that can help you don't, they can't because you're already, and you just, next thing you know, you're on the street. So God forbid drugs gets involved, alcohol gets involved or something like that, which is an easy thing to turn to when you're in that kind of state of depression or whatever the case may be. So, and it is difficult when you can't find a job and all this other stuff, you slip into this depressive state and you automatically start reaching out towards those other things. And, you know, and being in the military, it gave them a routine, it gave them consistency and it gave them what we were talking about earlier in the cult or the gangs. It gives you a sense of family, you know, absolutely a sense of family, but also a sense of security as odd as that sounds. You get this sense of security because you have an infrastructure in place. If you're married, they'll they'll provide a house. If not, they're going to give you a little extra money so you can go find an apartment somewhere. You know, there's that you know this system and you know how to work within that system. There's a it's a merit-based system. You do good, you move up. It doesn't matter what background you came from, what anything, it doesn't matter. If you perform well, you move up. And so when you get into the civilian world, that ain't always the case. Sometimes if you ain't got the right sheepskin, if you ain't got this, you ain't got that, you ain't getting but to a certain level. So that is extremely impacting on a lot of the veterans when they slide into the civilian sector. I mean, because, you know, I mean, they do. They In the military of 20, I mean, besides the, the benefit that they will get, which is for some people is not a lot. And then they go back if to go back to the civilian life. I mean, I can only imagine if, if it was me, it'd be very difficult to have a, that kind of a lifestyle to come back and to be able to deal with your symptoms of trauma and also to get a, a regular job. And now you're starting fresh. I mean, you well, know, you've been it, in the military. 
How many times have you said, my soldiers were my family or they were people I look after? I mean, look at the terminology, our family, our people, my team, you know, that sense. So sometimes I feel like for these soldiers, you know, they retire or they're finished. And I feel like sometimes this maybe it wasn't a good idea for them to finish. Well, the psychological aspect of that, you know, I, I call it the once a warrior king. At one point in my life, I was in charge of millions and millions of dollars worth of equipment and the lives of the nation's sons and daughters were in my hands to make sure that they came back home or were properly trained and capable to be able to do what they needed to be doing with the highest level of success to be able to come home. All of that enormous amount of pressure. And then tomorrow I'm selling cars, you know, and, and there's no, your sense of accomplishment and achievement and all of that is just gone. It's shattered. It was, you know, there's a great book. I think it was called Once a Warrior King, where this guy ran a mountain yard army, an entire army in Vietnam. And he, I mean, he was the head king in charge, you know, and, uh, and the next day he came back home and can't even get a job. So, you know, the psychological impact of all of this is just overwhelming. It's very true. Very true. So what about the second part with the new research that's coming out? Because that fascinates this, me that they're that... using MDMA, <laughs> they're using CBD, they're using medical marijuana. Because psilocybin is Psil also being psilocybin, used. Psilocybin, yeah. Yeah, th that's also being used. And yeah, I'm a geek doctor. I, I, do, I, see I, that. I do read a lot of I have to of, like look up this I stuff. I know. Some of this <laughs> stuff is like, it's. I shouldn't even be reading it. I just stumble <laughs> upon it. And it's more or less from the fitness industry too. Right. Because a lot of fitness freaks are experimenting with this stuff in completely the wrong way. You know, like if you're in fitness, like this is a medical thing, in my opinion, that right. should be used medically. And they go on enlightening journeys, so to speak, yeah. you know, when it's just the reality is they just probably want to go have a good weekend. Whereas yeah. medically now they're experimenting with us because they did find out that it does release certain neuropathways that kind of alter the chemicals in the brain so that they can deal with the anxiety, the depression and everything. And is that something that's on the forefront of military research right now? <laughs> Well, first of all, I know the military is on the forefront of research and many, many different things. And I wouldn't be remotely surprised if this isn't one of them. And the military, I have to hand it to them. I'm shocked every time I read certain things. I, I used to work in, when I was doing one of my jobs, I was like one of the experts for my career field. So I'd get a, a call every once in a while. We used to call it Directorate of Force Development. And they would have some new gadget or something. Would this work for your career field, for what you do? And then they would consider that whether or not they would... And I was shocked at the stuff that they were just playing with and researching with and developing, things that haven't even hit the civilian market to this day. So I would not be remotely surprised if they weren't researching or involved in that as well. But uh, obviously, I'm, you know, I'm just like you. I, I stumble across things and I read about things. I, some of my guys tell me, you know, hey, I'm trying this out and it's working for me. And I just go by what I've read and known. So I really don't have any statistics, any numbers in that regard for you. Okay. But I have heard from a couple of different places that some of those things are working because the previous, I guess, ideology of pharmaceutical approach. I think, I think it was approach, a 60%. 60% recovery rate with MDMA, yeah. one of the articles that I read, which is phenomenal. It is phenomenal. Uh, and we're talking like 
0.7 grams, like the minimal amount with the aid of a psychologist and a psychiatrist. I want to reiterate that, that it's like a full medical team that is involved with people that are suffering from PTSD, anxiety, and so forth. So when they're giving them, they're not dropping acid to go to to a party or a rave. They're actually, they're in a medical facility and everything's being monitored. So, I mean, it's a high success rate. And eventually, I mean, the code will get cracked. I hope from that. I do hope because, you know, a lot of my friends, they're taking the, the classic medicine from the old days and stuff like that. It's not benefiting them. They can't stand it. They hate taking pills all the time anyhow, but they would love to get proper treatment. And so if there's something like that out there that would help them, I'm all about it. I, you know, support it 100%. And I, I hope that they do look at every potential option that's out there. Yeah. I mean, it's just... <laughs> There, there are, and eventually it's going to happen. I think. Like, I mean, I like reading weird articles, especially about like you know the CBDs that are coming out and the formulas and that I are think coming out now. I think that's very interesting, and I, I think we need to look into it more, especially in the U.S. You know, since it's legalized, and and there are been have have been a lot of cases and a lot of research done that has been worked. I mean, definitely a lot of people have been reporting CBD very well for insomnia. Well, one of the things that I always say though is, and this is just me personally, you know, anytime you introduce something foreign into your body, that should not be the cure. You're right. 100%. That should, that 100%. Should, yeah. That, it maybe <laughs> facilitates the cure. Facilitates, yeah. But, yeah. but it's, that's why I, I agree 100% with Makes you, sense. you know, with that medical team that's there. This is something that allows them to be able to be treated to inevitably be able to wean off of whatever exactly, it is. Yeah. That they're that's the point and of it. I'm yep. a big fan of anything like that, you know. A lot of times... In the you, old, can't, you can't go you know, through life with a crutch yeah, for the you rest know, of your in, life. In the old days, you know, in the military, you know, when you have a physical job like that, you know, you're, you're hurting all the time. So we used to always joke in the old days, they used to give you a big bottle like this, Motrin, <laughs> and say, you know, I, I, dog, my back hurts, take a Motrin. I told you, I told you about my buddy Country, who was ex-military. Yeah, big, yeah. big Country, I mean, he had like five bottles of Motrin in his oh, that's, bag. That's and he would magic. pop them like they were candy. I'm like, you're not worried about your kidney and liver, man. You know, like, it's all fun and games till your stomach starts burning. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I was one of those guys at one point in my life, and I said, you know, a lot. Me personally, I'm anti, you know, for me physically, I I just don't believe in taking medicines and this and that unless you absolutely don't have a choice in life. And that's because I'm in a hospital. And just to get me in a hospital, it takes a team of mules. (laughs) Or I I think whenever you're in a, you know, in a facility where there there are medical doctors who's looking at, you know, it kills me. Even my students, like, you know, as soon as you talk about substance abuse or whatever and they're like you know there's always one person that puts his hand up and says but doc it's been proven that you know marijuana works or whatever and i'm thinking no not in this country and not really the way you're thinking it because most people think oh you know there's no problem smoking up or you know taking and they're not understanding that this is something if it's monitored it's controlled it's seen like in the u.s if you're taking it from a medical facility it's monitored by someone that is professional. It's you know developed differently. It's followed yeah, up. Absolutely, it's not even the same thing as it's what they're the talking same thing. about. But then I'm like you. The other thing is, is that I'm thinking that if you really need this substance, regardless, you know, you get these, you know, I get these patients that are like, no, I can quit anytime. Oh no, it's not doing anything for me, but it helps me. And I'm thinking, if you need something like that to help you, then there's a problem. Yeah. And that is the problem we need to really address. If I'm having exactly. a problem, I mean, there's so many studies with uh, sleeping and sleeping problems and people are suffering with insomnia. And it's like, there is a problem. 
So if you haven't really resolved the problem of why you can't be sleeping, you know, what we're doing is we're band-aiding it. We just want to find a, a way to sleep. Yeah, but you're we're treating really the symptom. You're not treating the problem. Yeah, we're not exploring yeah. why are you not sleeping, you know. And like, you know, everyone needs five. Some people need five hours. Some people need eight hours. It's not true that the idea that we all need eight hours. I mean, I operate on five hour every day and I'm fine. And there are other people, like if they can't have their eight hours, they're groggy. So it, it really depends. There's no... I resemble no, that remark. Yeah. <laughs> so to me, I feel like, but if I can't sleep, I need to figure out what it is. So it's not, you know, so if it's PTSD or if it's whatever, something's on your mind, if it's not mirrors that are keeping you from not sleeping, I think you need to really talk about it. And like we said earlier, is that individuals who are suffering from PTSD don't like to talk and they repress a lot of their feelings, especially military men who are been told to do, do and not talk. I mean, you, you know, you're not in the military so you can talk. You're there to, to, you have a job to get done. And so to get them to the idea of like speaking about how they're feeling, I think is very important. Well, you know, it's a different world today too. There are so many, even in the civilian sector, you know, there's ways to get help. Even if you're scared to death that it's going to affect your career, this, then find another avenues because there's so many different avenues that are out there today. You can call what 800 phone numbers all day long and, and be able to talk to a professional. You know, there's so many tools that are out there. But the most important thing is get help. Yeah, that's true. Don't, I agree. Don't let it get to the point to where now you can't get help or it's too late for you or it's going to take you forever to get it straight. You know, don't, I just. I don't know. I wish I could just tell the whole world, look, you know, it is what it is. Face it. Go deal with it. It's like everything else. You know, we, in the military, you deal with things. You know, you have some catastrophic event happen. You take a deep breath and you circle the wagons and you move forward. And you, you know? put your pride away. I mean, it's the same thing as like why I've been constantly letting people know, like, you know, when, when I get somebody that has been a veteran and has had these symptoms and he's waited five years before he can come to my office, the idea is that because there's pride, there is, I mean, rarely do they not know that what's happening to them. They know what's happening to them. Maybe they don't call it PTSD, even though there's a lot more awareness with PTSD in the military environment. But, they'll, you know, you'll ask them, why'd you wait for five years? Oh, because I thought I can handle it. I'm toughening it up. I thought people that come to see you are crazy. You know, the idea is that if we can just get over this pride yeah. and the stigma, more and more people, and like you said, like I was impressed in the U.S. This, you know, more and more in the U.S. We have all these programs, get help or, you know, a therapist on the go or whatever. All of these things that we they're doing to make sure that people, you know, if you're worried about sitting in the office with me and then, you know, that might make you feel like you really need help, then get on the phone, like you said. I mean, I was impressed with a lot of like the veterans hospital we have in Chicago. They do have that one services now where you can you know, go, you don't need to come in if you're just coming for some support. They have these like support groups that doesn't even have a psychologist in there where they're just, you know, several of them sitting there talking about their experiences. These are things that people should utilize. Why not? I, I find it interesting that, you know, as a combat arms guy, I would sit with anybody, anybody yes. that was a good shooter and show me a new technique. You got another technique? Show me what you got. Let's see how it works out. Oh, hand to hand. You got a new way to fight? No problem. Let's We'll bring in an expert from every different type of discipline out there. You know, hey, mental health, oh, I got it. I'll take care of it on my own. Really? Why not sit that? You know, yeah. okay, take care of it on your own, but why don't you do it with an expert? 
you know, uh, that's the thing. So yeah, it's very true. A lot so. of people think they could self-diagnose themselves and self-fix themselves, but in reality, if we don't learn from people better than us, we're never going to move forward. You know, and I say this in sports. You know, if I I've, I've been a baseball player my whole life, and I have learned from the best players, and I've learned from the beginners in the game. Absolutely, because you can always pick something up from somebody. Absolutely, just because you're a seasoned professional doesn't mean you're the best, and you're ignorant and cocky, in my opinion, if you think you are the best and you're the nah, end-all, be-all, you know? like To me, that's a fundamental of leadership, you know? If you can't listen to the lowest-ranking person as much as you listen to the highest-ranking person, well, first of all, it's a level of respect thing. You know, I treat the janitor the same way I treat anybody else, you know? so But the other side of the house is my life has been saved by a private more than once. Yeah, yeah, more sense, right? than once. Yep. So when he's got an idea, I listen. So... You know, like you said, you can learn from everybody. And if somebody's an expert at it, who better to learn from? Well, thank you so much for being here. Oh, my pleasure. Amazing experience. You wanted to talk about AI. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. I, I didn't did want to yeah. keep you guys going. See, but see, he, 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 likes, he likes this conversation, I'm assuming. Artificial, artificial intelligence. All right. Is this the <laughs> way of the future to fight wars? <laughs> yes, Look, no, I gotta maybe. Ask, I got to ask the ET question because, I mean, you see so many kids that are gamers now. Yeah. And life is about gaming and Fortnite, whatever the hell these kids are playing now. Yeah. Like, it's like, it's a different level of gaming. And when you see what's going on with drone technology right now, um, and we stay away from politics, so I'm not going to bring up any names or any countries or anything at all. But when you see drone technology, I mean, hell, about a month ago, a guy was arrested for using a drone to try and drop a bomb on his ex-girlfriend. Oh, <laughs> this is a true story. Look Are it you up serious? online. Yeah. Oh, my God. So, I mean, crazy. do you see a future where humans aren't fighting anymore? Where it's, you know, technology, robots, planes, whatever. Well, I, I'm trying to remember who it was, but uh, what was it Stephen Hawking? I think one of his last things he said is, hey, don't keep going down the AI road. Scary. Yeah. It is scary. You know, Facebook uh, invented uh, two computers and they had to unplug it yeah, because they started that. creating their own code. Yeah, right. see? You know, I, I don't I think really that, think. I think that AI has validity, absolutely. But it's never going to replace humans. I don't think. Well, you know, here's the thing. The bottom line is this. You don't own dirt until you're standing on it. Yep. You know, so if, right. uh, if, the dirt's if, you, if the dirt's owned by a bunch of computers and a bunch of robots, well, they're the ones that own it, not you. What about Terminator? <laughs> <laughs> they were all in trouble. <laughs> and they own the dirt, not you. Remember, it was the humans ducking in holes in Terminator. So, you know, I'm going to a conference here in a few days just to discuss uh, simulations and all of these types of things. And one of the things is, is AI and virtual reality and all of these aspects to training and so on and so forth. And I see an enormous amount of validity in it. I see it in the fact of forecasting potential hotspots in the world and using uh, uh, simulated systems to be able to do that. AI will play a large part in that. I see AI as, as a large part of being able to develop adaptive, agile soldiers and leaders or, or even law enforcement or whoever it is that uses some of these training systems and tools. So I think it's very, very important. Do I see somebody's driving that drone? Yeah, yeah, that's you know? true. And even in some of the emerging uh, concepts that I've seen lately where you have a platform, whether it's aviation, sea, whatever, and it coughs up a bunch of just drones that go out and do things, whether it's, you know, reconnoitering, so on and so forth, it's still going back feeding to a human. And it's that human that's driving that train. So I don't think anytime really soon. I Do I believe that? 
there are going to be robotic tanks and stuff out there, it's already on the way. Without a doubt. Do I believe there's going to, are drones a threat? Drones are a major threat in the world today. And governments all over the world are trying to figure out how to deal with this. You know, you want to interrupt the signals. You want to interrupt, you know, kinetically. The problem with kinetics is what goes up must come down. And when you're sitting in an urban environment, you don't want to be throwing bullets into the sky or lasers, you know, when airplanes are flying by. So it's a big issue right now. Look at, you know, I was watching that Dubai airport TV show one time. And the episode I watched, they happened to have a drone and shut down the entire airport. So it's costing the world millions. But, you know, drones are not new either. They've been around for a long time. And, and, and there's been numerous incidents over the years when it comes. Well, I think they parked a drone with uh, radio, uh, radioactive material or something like that on top of the Japanese prime minister's residence like 10 years ago or so. Oh, wow. you know? So this is something that's that's been around. It's just being... You know, I, I, I lump it all into what's called niche technology, you know. It's like these IEDs that we were dealing with in the military. It's because I always used to sit there and say, and this is part of partially an answer to what you're saying. I used to give lectures about what was going on like in Iraq and Afghanistan and everything. I always tell everybody all the time, I was like, you know, think about this. You know, the United States arguably is the most powerful military in the world with the most sophisticated equipment. We've got these multi, multi, multi-million dollar tanks that can shoot miles, that can see things miles, and are got jet engines running them and everything else. Yet a guy with an AK-47 has been holding them off for years. Why? How? You know, niche technology. You know, they, they turn around and look, components from Radio Shack. Next thing you know, you found a way to defeat or or they suck you into an urban environment where, where that type of equipment doesn't work very well, and they capitalize on it. And I think in the future, you're going to see that same thing. You're going to see, okay, if you throw your robotics out there, we're going to pull it into an environment where it ain't going to be able to function as well, depending on who's on what side. So I, uh, I got one more crazy question. Sure. <laughs> Sorry, Dr. D, I know. But it's like, I got to ask these questions. What about bionic soldiers? I mean, like superhumans. <laughs> this is true. No, but this is true. No, they, that, the, I, superhumans I that they are breeding superhuman soldiers and using technology like bionic, I don't know, suits or something. And I read this. Half of it you never know because half of it comes out from crazy people. Well, the, this sounds and, like it's coming you know, from it's a like crazy the person. Area 51 What'd stuff. But reality says if you see it in the movie sometimes it's on its way and well you got i I think you look at it from i I personally i look at it from two different perspectives number one let's look at the human aspect you know today the conditioning and you know the level that you physically are at in the military in certain types of organizations is amazing you're running less sub 10 minute two miles and and you know you got this enormous amount of strength and endurance do you think they substitute with external factors i know some people do on an individual level but but, i'm saying from from an organizational perspective do you think militaries will start using not peds i mean let's not say steroids because it's not going to be steroids i mean uh, they would i think everything's been tried already i know probably that but they'd probably use something a lot stronger i'm talking like hulk type technology well, the problem with that is this, is that it's, you know, combat isn't about a sprint, it's an endurance. It's a long race, you know. So when you turn around and you start pumping stuff into a human body, that tends to, that, that tends to ping them for a little while. Yeah. And then they plop back down again and they crash. So yep. I, I don't, it isn't about that. It's about building the best physical conditioning that you could have to function in that rough environment. And I think that's, 
And today, people like you that are experts physically and in, in physical fitness and, and, and conditioning that didn't exist in, you know, 30 years ago. Yeah. And, I'm, and I'm by no means an expert, by the way. <laughs> I, 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 I talked to, you, I talk yeah. to you for a little bit to me. You are. So, <laughs> so I appreciate but, that. But, but when you start taking a look at, you know, all these tools that are out nowadays and everything else that uh, can hone a human body to this outstanding performance peak, you know, these we're breaking world records every year yeah. in, in all of these different, why? Well, that is bleeding over into the, the, the guy, you know, these are professionals, you know, this is what we did for a living. So it, it's on you to be at your peak performance. So on the human side of the house, I think that level will continue to go up and there will be these teams, especially in, in specialist units where they are just in phenomenal physical shape. Now with that side, now over to the other side that you're talking about when it comes to things like robotics and stuff like that already exists. So there are like, we are going to see bionic soldiers uh, without where a, they can without jump a, 50 without feet. A doubt. With the, oh, that's amazing. I, 50 <laughs> feet in the air and all of that, man, maybe, but you know, I'm I, talking about like some GI Joe shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, the, uh, the things I, that uh, I'm reading about and seeing now that are popping up, you know, you got, you know, clothes that have, it's. I mean, take a look right now at these people that are walking now that have polio and these things that yeah, they, weren't, yeah. they weren't able to walk. Yep. Well, you integrate that into your clothing, strap it onto a soldier. Now his, you know, 100, 100 pound backpack that used to hurt my back all the time is, is like 20 pounds to him. So now he's carrying 200 pounds. Yeah. So there are, and not only that, just the equipment that they're carrying now is just you know, the way they've designed and everything else. When I first came in, it was ripping my shoulders and I could only carry this much yeah, weight. You know, when I, sense. when I left, the equipment was allowing me to carry three times more than I normally did. So yeah, I think that we are getting to the point that there were, there will be robotic type assistance in a sense, not only in a physical form as in it may be integrated in your uniforms to support, you know, joints, so on and so forth, and lifting capabilities and all well, of that. Well, you already see it. You see it in sports. Uh, yeah, you see yeah. the sports performance with, like, the shorts, the pants, the yeah, exactly. Tom Brady pajamas where you sleep, and it, like, enhances your sleep. I We had a performance expert on last week, uh, and her and her husband were talking about, you know, HRV. I used HRV, heart rate variability. You measure it in the morning, and it tells you if you're, you know, ready for the day and what your peak fitness level is for that day so that you can train accordingly. I used to do that and I stopped doing it. And because my fitness level has gone downhill the past two weeks, I started doing it again just to see and measure my body. And then they were talking about visual techniques and all this crazy stuff that I haven't even heard of that's just being practiced at a higher level. So that's why I asked about military because if it's in professional sports, guaranteed it's probably at a different level when it comes to the military and what they're doing nowadays. You know, the military gets its crack at the first technology that comes out there a lot of times. You know, even if it's a civilian technology, it's no surprise when some somebody invents something and somebody from the military is knocking on their door and saying, hey... We got to bring you back on. I got to bring yeah, you back do. on. I gotta, yeah, we got to bring you back on. I want to I want to talk to you more about the physical fitness side of things and maybe get into the leadership of coaching and coaching from a fitness perspective and how it translates to all sports and acts of life, basically. Psychological. Psychological. Believe it or not, one of the biggest keys to all of that is psychological performance. Now, I, I, it will, we'll come well, back one day. I like your day, view but... on leadership, too. I'd love to have you talking about leadership. No, I'll be happy to. Okay. Well, yeah, I'm done, Dr. D. Doc, you're done talking about <laughs> He's so into this. But we definitely have to have you come down back next time and talk about what Mehdi likes the most. <laughs> Technology. Hey, stay quiet for 45 I know. minutes. So, I mean, we finished the uh, psychology part of it and then you'll come back and fulfill his dreams with all these questions. 
Um, but thank you so much for being here. Absolutely, my pleasure. We loved having you, loved having your experience. And definitely we'll have you on again and again. I think I think you could be a regular. It. I like your voice. Yeah, you got a great voice. Yeah, you voice have a great voice yeah. actually. Amazing. <laughs> so we'll uh, my soldiers like you. didn't think so when I used to yell at them all the time. <laughs> well, thank you. No, my pleasure. Thank you all very much. It's been a wonderful experience. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. You can also find us on Instagram at The Project Kuwait. Thank you, and join us next time.